Good morning. Hello. We're going old school today with a microphone. Uh, can I uh, just reiterate that welcome? Um, if you're here for the first time, you've chosen a great week. We've got the welcome meal. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better. You've also chosen an interesting time if you're here for the first week because, as Rosie said, we're right at the very end of our Exodus series. Um, I hope you don't mind, but for the sake of everyone else in the room who's been listening, I'm not going to reiterate the entire uh, series this morning and do a blow-by-blow account, but let me at least uh, spend a bit of time doing a, a, a bookend. So uh, uh, we'll look at what happened at the start of Exodus and where we're up to now, which is them actually getting on with building the tabernacle, and uh, we'll, we'll spend some time seeing their response to that. Now, Exodus starts with the Israelites on a great building project for a king, a pharaoh, and um, he's not He's not uh, good in any way. Uh, there is, they're building these giant store cities. Uh, there's babies being killed uh, because he wants to oppress the people. There's bricks without straw happening. And then it ends up, where we're looking at today, in chapters 35 to 40, with them working on another project. So this is the tabernacle. JP went through the details a few weeks ago, the blueprint of the tabernacle, and uh, we'll look into them actually doing the stuff, but there was things like the golden lampstands, do you remember that? The mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, those uh, incredible embroidered curtains. Uh, Ours are still on order. And um, it's interesting to think, actually, that in one sense, not much has changed at all. So they started their time in the service of a king, a pharaoh, and they finished their time in the service of a king, the king of kings, the lord of all. They're still serving, aren't they? And interestingly, the Hebrew words for serve and slave and worship is all the same. But the king that they serve at the end of Exodus is one that brings joy and hope and love and transformation instead of pain and death. So that's where the difference is. And uh, you might think, okay, well, our society is a long way away from this. Uh, Please could I have a show of hands for anyone who's built a pyramid recently? Come on, don't be shy. Who's done that? Or anyone whose company uh, makes golden lampstands out of the finest 24-carat gold? Do we have anyone who uh, does that? We don't do it. It looks, it looks quite different from a society perspective. But I would say that our reality is actually the same. Because like them, we are always serving someone or something. And it depends on who you end up serving. So Bob Dylan, a famous musician. This is such an up-to-date current quote. He's, he's such a commentator into modern, you know, the young adult life, isn't he? Uh, we've got one nod, actually, from someone who's vaguely in that category. <laughs> um, he's, he said this in a Sunday, right? And don't worry, I'm not going to start sending it, but I would actually appreciate it. If anyone wants to do the harmonies, people feel a bit carried away as I read it out, then feel free to do it. He said this. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long list of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. 
Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. No harmonies, but it's true, isn't it? Who then are we serving in our culture? What does our culture say that we should serve? For the most part, our culture says that we should be serving the gods of individualism. The cultural narrative which is fed to us time and time again is you're to use your time, your treasure, your talents, and what are you supposed to do with them? You're supposed to serve yourself. Now, our culture doesn't have a problem with us recognizing talents in the first part. You know, it encourages people to step forward and use the gifts that have been given to them for a purpose. I mean, it's a primetime TV show, Britain's Got Talent. It's arguable whether it actually succeeds in its mandate, in its purpose, but it's there, isn't it? It's, you know, it's, it's part of our culture. And I don't know, you go to a football game, a kids' football game on a Saturday or Sunday, and you've got dad after dad cheering his son on, hoping he'd be the next forest superstar the next joe lolly if he's still there he might be might be on the way out (laughs) and so there's nothing wrong with us honoring talents that is good in our society there's nothing wrong with creating and doing something which is beautiful but the problem comes is when we use our skills our money our time to glorify ourselves to, um, to accumulate more for us, to try and make our lives more and more and more comfortable, to help our kids get ahead in life at the expense of other children. And studies say that we're actually becoming more and more like this. This is the way that our society is going even more so. So I read a really interesting article in Psychology Today, and the title of the article was Self-Centered, The New Normal, and it states this. Academics have observed how words and terms appearing in print have drifted away from usage of community-based ones towards more individualistic-based ideas. So that is terms and words like self and unique and I come first and I can do it myself have become more frequently printed. Words like collective and share and band together and common goods they're actually receding in usage. So in a very real sense, it finishes by saying this, in a very real sense, the culture of the 21st century whispers to our kids to take care of themselves and ignore the community at large. We are living in changing times, an era of a poorly studied morality shift. This is the message, this self-voted message repeated over and over again. It's in our culture setters. It's in our newspapers. It's in our popular entertainment. It's the message of every Disney film that I've ever watched, at least, that you're so special and life is about you finding self-fulfillment and it's about other people acknowledging your giftings. It's even permeated our church. It's even permeated church as a, as a whole. None of us are immune. I taught myself a few months ago, praying, I pray with my kids in the night. They're nine, eight, and six. And often my prayers, uh, I found, ended up being, 
that thank you that Noah is so special. Thank you that Evie is so wonderful. She's such a gift to me, all of this sort of stuff, which is all true, but that's only part of the story, isn't it? The actual, the, the part which we should be focusing on as well is how magnificent and how glorious our Lord and Savior is. And that we need to get that into culture rather than just focusing in on ourselves. Because the huge problem with the mindset that we all find ourselves having is that if you put yourself at the center of the universe, there ends up being huge insecurity. There ends up being a need for more and more and more validation. We f because we feel confused, we feel hurt, we feel angered at any personal criticism because what personal criticism does is it attacks the universe that we've spent so much time trying to create. You know, the universe that we've invested effort into and we've built, built our lives upon. And so any small slight is an attack of that. Church, we were made for something else, something so much more than this. We're made to use our time, our treasure, our talent to lift up and honor someone so much bigger than ourselves, someone who is eternal, unchanging, who's worthy of praise, who's perfect, who's holy, who's spotless. Amen? The way to utter freedom is not, as the world says, to serve ourselves and to put ourselves first. The way to utter freedom is to use our gifts and our service to honor God. Okay. So this passage today is looking at how the Israelites actually went and did that. Okay, let's read the passage. So we are reading from Exodus 35, verse 30. And it says this. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carved wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahizamak, of the tribe of Dan. And then we'll move on to uh, Exodus 36, verse 2. And it says this, And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put still, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had bought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free well offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for, the work, for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave the commands. And word was proclaimed throughout the camp. This is a command you don't hear much in church. <laughs> Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work 
and more. Now, this is a big moment, everyone. This is a huge moment, in fact, because I can say absolutely straight that the Israelites got things right in this passage. Isn't that good? How many other times in Exodus can you say that the Israelites got things right? So shall we, shall we give it up for the Israelites? Come on. Give them a round of applause. <laughs> they weren't using their time, their treasure, their talent to serve themselves or any other local god. They used them to honor God and to serve the one true God. They did this by listening to him and building the tabernacle. What they did was they put God in the center of their plans. So we, what we're going to do now is we're going to look at, firstly, how they did that. We'll look at the context that they, um, they were in, and then we will apply it to Grace Church. We'll look at um, how, to, how to use this passage um, to apply to us in our situation now. So picture yourself. It's about 1,100 BC. We're all camping, okay? Who, hands up. Who would be happy with this prospect of camping? We, we literally, we're in trouble, aren't we? We literally got four people. Amy is ecstatic over there. Uh, the rest of us are looking pretty miserable. I don't know, maybe a few people are smuggled in their own caravan, you know, four birth luxury while the rest of us are, are camping. Uh, maybe some of us are feeling pretty annoyed because we've got one of those rubbish pop-up festival tents which are too small, our feet stick out the ends, we're just in all sorts of trouble. Maybe some of us are just in a bad mood because our lilo's gone down in the night and we've come here, you probably how some of you feel, bad night's sleep after the heat of yesterday, and you're, but you're here. Okay, so we're camping, we're looking around, we see the Israelites, and uh, what are they doing? The people of God have, some of them have been spirit-filled. It says in the passage here, it says, He has filled them with the Spirit of God. What a way to be empowered, hey? Spirit-filled. They created beautiful objects. They gained knowledge. They worked together. They followed the blueprints that God had given them. This is society working as it should be. And God gave them the skills they needed for the task that he had in mind. There's beauty, there's passion, there's people playing to their strengths. What else were they? They're spirit-filled. They were creatively skilled. Do you see what I'm doing here? <laughs> with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, with all craftsmanship, the Israelites used their God-given creative talents to glorify God, to worship him, to build a place for, for God. Now, church, God loves creativity. He loves detail. He loves beauty. We, we hear that in worship all the time, how interesting he, interested he is in the day-to-day. -day. He invented art. He invented music, drama, poetry, dance. And what we saw is we saw actually a, a couple of episodes ago, we saw a corrupted version of these, um, these giftings used to worship Baal didn't we? We saw, um, we saw Baal, the local god, given the honor. But this is how it should be used. This is the, the beautiful, real deal. 
a question I had when I was looking at this passage was, was Bezalel creatively gifted before the Holy Spirit came and, and spoke to him? And it seems to be the answer is yes. Naturally, he did have skills, but the Holy Spirit empowered him and used them for, for God's glory. Okay, and um, what you often see here, or what you see in this passage, is this beautiful interplay between Moses and between Bezalel. And it shows people using their giftings accordingly. So Moses was able to hear from God. Moses um, got an idea of what the tabernacle uh, was to look like. But what Bezalel did, and what the Holy Spirit in, in, um, inspired Bezalel to do, was to uh, bring that to life. Bring what Moses had heard from God and to interpret it. And that's exactly what creativity, that's exactly what art does. It brings to life, it, it, it fleshes out what God is wanting to say to us. And the third point is generously free willed. They still kept bringing free will offerings to God, to Moses, every single morning. What generosity. Moses had to tell them to stop. Often a sign of the Holy Spirit moving, actually, on a people is a spirit of generosity. But the thing that really struck me with this passage is that there's also a warning in there. There were people who waited to, build, to give to build the dwelling place for God. And because of other people's generosity, what happened is they actually missed out. They were reluctant, and they waited to obey. How do you think they would have felt? They missed out on building the place where God dwells. They missed out on partnering with him. So, what does this mean for Grace Church? Are we to build our own tabernacle here? Are we to... Um, Make this place look a bit more grand. Maybe um, build a spire, build a steeple. Are we to um, build some fancy curtains? The response could be for us to embroider some cherubim on some nice curtain material for us to, uh, to, to lay out there. Is that what we're supposed to do? <laughs> we got, I got a yes, which maybe, maybe it is. <laughs> I've written no on my notes, so we'll stick with this. <laughs> because of Jesus... We are now not separate from God. So the times they have changed, to quote Dylan again. We are one in Christ. And Ephesians 2, verse 20, halfway through 20, it puts it like this. Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place, for God by the Spirit. We are being built together into a dwelling place by God, by the Spirit. We are co-laboring with Jesus, and he is the one who's building this church, a dwelling place for God, the new tabernacle. This is what the church is to look like. This means that, like the ark, we are to be a place where God reigns. Like the lampstand, we are to be a place where the light of the gospel shines and where people can find life in Christ. Don't you want Grace Church to be like that? People who don't yet know Jesus will come into our meetings and say, God is really among you. 
So let's apply this to Grace Church. The people, the people of God were spirit-filled. They were filled with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the one who breathes life into all creation. He empowers us. He is the source of all creativity. But there's one major difference between the Israelites and us now, and that's Pentecost, and that's the fact that the Holy Spirit is now available to all of us, not just a few. He can empower all of us. And the outworking of us being filled by the Holy Spirit is that we have our security in God. He fills us up rather than other people's words puffing us up or, or puffing us down, if that is even a thing. We are free. We're free to serve God. He gives us strength. Is the Holy Spirit the source of your creativity and strength, or is it other people's words? Is it what other people say to you? Or are you striving and pushing and forcing things through in your own energy rather than the Holy Spirit actually empowering you? <laughs> Lie down beside green pastures in still waters. It's, that's what we were told to do. It's what we sung about this morning. So spirit-filled, creatively stilled. God loves creativity. When we use our time, our treasure, our talents for a purpose, creativity is good, and we're called to use it for his glory. So when Sarah Jordan, um, who's normally at the nine, she sometimes here, is waving her flags and dancing and does the creative to move workshop, he gets the glory. When Esme Partridge does her spoken word poems, he is, it honors God. When Phil Bryan paints and does his artwork there, he's painting for the kingdom. I don't know if you're like me, but whenever I hear something about someone being creative, my first thought, honestly, is, Oh, man, I wish I was a bit more creative. You like that? My dad is exceptionally creative, rather annoyingly. He's an artist and a potter, and um, he does some amazing stuff. My mum, she's not. (laughs) She failed our O-level twice. (laughs) And unfortunately, my genes are far more hers than my dad's. However, what this passage speaks about is that everyone has got something to bring. So you might not be out-and-out creative, but you might be entrepreneurial, or you might be practical, or you might be uh, pastoral and be able to support and care for people. Where is God asking you to use your talents? Where is he asking them to use them? Are you using them in the right place? Has life got too busy for you? And busyness can often kill creativity. So is that got in the way? And my final point is we're to be generously free-willed. The gospel makes us want to diff. It's a sign of the grace of the gospel on us. It's totally countercultural to the generosity starts at home, picture, mandate, uh, lie that we're told as society. You know what? You give 15% of your money anonymously to the local church... 
What about all of those kids' activities that your kids need or that foreign holiday that you definitely deserve? You know, those things are all fine. And, and God can often provide those things in quite creative ways anyway. But they're not ultimately what life is about. But that's incomprehensible to those who find that life is about building themselves. This is the upside-down gospel. And as we give, we are blessed. Why? Because we encountered God. We encountered God. There's nothing better than that. The Macedonians, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, they got this, didn't they? They begged him to, they cried, we want to be part of this. We saw at the start of this story that um, the Israelites were trying to give and trying to work and do stuff out of a lack. They had to build their bricks without straw. Now, because of Jesus, we get to build out of abundance. That's our reality. He has given us all that we need, and as we give away, he in his grace gives us more. What's, what's God speaking to you about right now? What is he speaking to you about? Don't be like the Israelites and miss out on building God's kingdom. Everybody serves somebody. Everyone serves somebody. However, following societal norms and serving yourself, it might look like freedom in the short term, but it actually leads to bondage. True freedom is only found in serving Jesus. We used to spend our money pursuing selfish ends. We were slaves to our selfish desires. We worked on what our enslaving idols demanded, but then God liberated us. God liberated us. God liberated you. We're still slaves, remember? Servant, slave, serve, slave, and worship are the same Hebrew words, but now we're slaves to righteousness. God sets us free, and he sets us free to serve him. He doesn't set us free to do our own thing. And then as we serve him, we are free. This is the gospel and the hope that we believe in. So the Exodus is a story. It's the, it's the, climax, uh, the climax of the story in Exodus, rather, is the construction of the tabernacle. God has rescued his people from slavery and death so that they can be free. Everything so far has been leading up to this moment. And it also gives us a glimpse into the reality of what freedom will look like in the future. One day a new creation will happen where we can be eternally free to give God all the glory. The tabernacle is a taste of God's glory. The new creation is its eternal fulfillment. And in the end, what we get from God is God. But what are we supposed to do in the meantime, in this sort of space here? We're supposed to co-labor with Jesus in building the church. Building Grace Church. Seeing churches thrive across Nottingham. Building Kins Church. Revelation Church. Whatever the church is going to be called in Newcastle. You all have time, treasure, and talents to do this. Serve him with all that you have. Don't miss out 
on building God's kingdom. If we have the band.